Well, I hope that you brought your Bibles with you this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the back table there. Um, and, and, and I've said this before, but I want you to take those Bibles. I want you to use those Bibles. If you are in need of it at home, take it with you. It's yours. But you need to have your Bible with you when you come to church on Sunday morning. It's important to have it. It's vital to have it open on your lap to be able to, to, to follow through as we hear God's word preached. It's so important. And aren't you just in awe of who God is this morning? If you were with us since uh, a Sunday school this morning, that's been the theme all morning long. It's just how amazing our God is. And, and aren't you just in awe of his word as well? I mean, you, you know him. You know our God. We know Him in salvation. We, we know Him more and more through His Word. We understand Him more and more through getting into the Bible, getting into God's Word. It's such a privilege and an honor, but isn't it convicting to get into the Word of God? Isn't it? If you spend any time in the Word of God, you are going to be convicted. Prepare for that. Prepare to be convicted because God's Word cuts through all of the junk that's in our lives. That's what it does. Be prepared for that. Be prepared for God's Word to show you who you really are. As a believer, you are a sinner saved by grace, saved by the grace of God. You and I, we are not worthy of the salvation that we have received. We cannot earn our salvation. Our salvation is about Christ, by Christ, and Him, and Him alone. It is He who has made it possible. It's He who gives us meaning. It's He who gives us purpose. And so the Word does show us who we are, but also who we are in Him. As believers, we are saved we are redeemed, we are justified, we are and will be glorified, and we are being sanctified daily. We are being constrained to be more like His Son. That's that ongoing sanctification that we've been talking about. The Word, God's Word, shows us all of that. It not only shows us who we are, but it shows us who He is. It shows us everything about Him, what, what He's done for us, what He will do, it shows us everything about Him, what He's going to do in, in the future. It's, it's how we get to know Him even deeper and deeper and deeper. It's how we grow in our knowledge of who God is. It's through the Word. And the Word is an amazing thing. It's also very, very sharp. It divides. And as we said, it's terribly convicting. You know, I've had people come up to me and say, you know, your sermons could be a little bit less convicting, you know. They're, they're, they, they can be a little, a little harsh sometimes. And, and, and I get that. Try, try preaching them. Try having to digest it and understand, oh, I have to preach on that this week? Oh, that's going to be interesting. Just preach the truth, Pastor. Preach the truth. We preach the Word, right? We preach God's Word. We are why Bible church, emphasis on Bible. That's what we preach. We preach Christ, we preach Him, we preach Him crucified. And so today we come to one of those passages that are one of those passages that are, guess what, convicting. I mean, you can't even get past the first sentence. The first verse 
of this passage. And so join me in Philippians chapter 2. It's been up on the screen. Hopefully you've been preparing. By the way, it's also in your bulletin. Uh, and so uh, someone was uh, sharing with me one of their tricks this week. They said they look at the bulletin and they, they, they get it all marked up. So then when I start to preach, they're already there. So hopefully you're already at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 14 through 18. That is the paragraph. That is the preaching section. And so what I want to do is I want to read it together. Again, I, my, my prayer, my hope is that you have God's word open. It's on your lap. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Get ready for this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oh, goodness. Verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God. Above, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life, so that in it, that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. I told you it was going to be convicted. Right there in the first verse. You can't even get past the first verse. You can't even start with the feel good. You start with the command. And it couldn't be any clearer. And it is the main command in this section, by the way. It's right up front, right there. Can't get by it. We like to complain, don't we? And we do. I drove to Maine, to and back to Maine last week, so I had about 26 to 28 hours to practice this idea of not complaining. Let me tell you, it was, it was, it was a big journey. You know, I mean, it would be so much easier if you all could just get out of my way on the roads. I mean, just, just, just clear out the way. And, and you do know, right, that there are multiple different lanes on a two-lane highway. The left lane is the what? The fast lane. Okay, then abide by it. Do it. Yeah, get out of it. It's a passing lane, right? So if I come up behind you, get out of the way. Guess what I was complaining about? People that are just chilling in the fast lane or the passing lane, Lord, I get it. And they may be doing the speed limit, by the way. But guess what? I want to go faster. I got a, I got a direction to go. I mean, look, I've known for a long time that I'm preaching this sermon and I'm driving, trying to practice what I preach, right? I mean, look, those are the battles that go on in our mind about not complaining because here's the deal. We are a complaining people. We are. I, I did a little Google search about the, the, the top things that we complain about. And what I saw in there were a lot of things that I related to. But what I wanted was something that we here in Queen Anne's County, Canaan, Graysonville, Centerville, predominantly, what do we complain about? Bay Bridge traffic. There it is. Bay Bridge traffic. Can I get a witness, right? I mean, my goodness, the traffic. Ever complain about that? Probably have. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, if you live in Centerville, in Northbrook, uh, your, your, your water bill? Anybody? Yeah, taxes, water bills. Uh, if, if you go to a restaurant and you have bad service, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get on Facebook and you're going to complain about it. And that poor little business 
You, you've, you've hurt. We do it. Right? Many of you look, I, I, I'm not a big Facebook person, but I get on there just to see what's going on, and I follow the threads, and you're like, oh my gosh, really? We're complaining about this? But complaining, go on and on. And if you've been on Facebook, have you seen the complaint about the crop dusters? <laughs> what is that plane that keeps going around and around and around? Don't they know how early it is? Don't they know how low they're going? Oh my goodness. Complain, look, Queen Anne's County, we got a lot, we, 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 we complain, right? What about, this is going to hit a nerve, exit closures. <laughs> Chris? That's uh-huh. right. Exit closures. I'm not even going to stay there because we'll get overwhelmed. Look, we have a lot to complain about, don't we? Or do we? Do we? No. We, 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 we complain about a lot of things, but do we really have anything to complain about? We are a blessed people. We really are. And yet we are the worst complainers that there are. Our young people learn their complaining from who? Us, the parents. Now, kids, it doesn't mean you just start paying for your parents because you're a pretty bad complainer too. I know because I, when I grew up, oh, I complained a lot. In fact, there's a saying that my dad would say, and he's going to watch this later, and, and he'll know. I complained so much that my dad would say this phrase, and it's triggered, and it's tattooed on my mind. Quit your complaining. Just quit your complaining. This is what Paul was trying to get to and get through to the Philippians. And so you know, if he's saying, quit your complaining, then they're doing what? They're complaining about something. There's something that they're complaining about. There are issues inside the church. I mean, maybe not as much as other churches that Paul writes to, because this is a book of joy. But it's also a practical book. It's a real book. People do complain. And Paul says, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling literally means a murmuring or a muttering. Ever mutter underneath your breath? Someone cuts you off. And you're muttering. And guess what? When you mutter, you mutter underneath your breath, but just loud enough so somebody can hear it. Maybe not people across the room, but somebody's going to hear it. Not all people. This word is also translated complaining different places. We're not going to look at them. Acts 6, 1 Peter 4, James 5. And then disputing. Disputing is defined as this. As a hesitation or a questioning to what ought to be done or what is happening. It's a form of complaining. That's the point that Paul is trying to get across here. And one author points out that grumbling is more connected with the emotion where disputing is with the intellect. And again, one leads to another. You involve both the emotion and the will when you are complaining. And you know this sort of thing is a tale as old as time. It's been around for forever. We find the account of Adam and Adam and Eve. You, you, you know that account. Adam and Eve, they chose to sin, and God confronts him and comes up to Adam and is like, Adam, what's going on? And what does he say? That woman. That woman that you gave me. Guess what he's doing? He's grumbling. He's complaining. He's the first grumbler. He's the first arguer. He's the first complainer. But let me ask you this. Is it really complaining? Is it really that big of a deal? I mean, everyone complains. And with all the junk going around in the world today, some of you may be thinking, complaining is what you're going to choose to preach on today? 
There's a lot of stuff going on in the world. You could have chose lying. You could have chose cheating. I mean, we live on the outskirts of the murder capital of the United States in Baltimore. I mean, people are killing people in the streets. You couldn't have preached about that. You had to preach about complaining. Well, we preach verse by verse here at my Bible. We can't skip over it. Well, we could, but you'd let me know about it. Didn't you forget that verse? We, we don't do that. We preach as the Bible is written. We preach book by book. And, and we preach expositionally. That means that we draw out and pull out from what is in there rather than putting in. So we, we, we can't go around it. We don't do that. So this quick complaining is what God has for you this morning. And by the way, it is important. Is it really that big of a deal though? You bet it is. In fact... God hates it. Complaining is sinful. Complaining is disruptive. Complaining is contagious too, by the way. It's, it's dangerous. And complaining detracts from the gospel, from the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a very great deal. And as Paul starts this new paragraph, he's, what he's doing is he's springboarding from what he's already written about, what he's already said. And he was writing about sanctification, right? The process of living out your salvation and growing day by day. Growing to become more like him and conform him to his image. It's done in his power. And by the way, there's no room for complaining when it comes to your sanctification. And not only does this back up the sanctification, but it backs up to the unity that we've been talking about. Unity within the church. And guess what? Complaining greatly affects the unity of the church. There's no way around that. And of course, we talk about humility. Humility is something that, uh, that we, we, we could be lacking in. And if you're a complainer, then guess what? You are lacking in humility. Humble and grumble, they sound the same, but they're two very different things. What we need is we need humble Christians. Not ones who grumble. And of course, when you think of grumblers, when you think of complainers in the Bible, who do you think of first? Anybody? The Israelites. Yeah. I mean, that's a natural place to go to. You think about the Israelites. They are the poster child for complainers. Those stinking, ungrateful, entitled whiners. Oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty quick to label, aren't we? But, but that's what they did. It, look, it wasn't long after they had been rescued from hundreds of years of backbreaking slavery, and they start complaining. Moses, really? You bring us out here as if there weren't enough graves in Egypt? I mean, it, the complaining started very early on in the nation of Israel. And like we said, it, it's contagious. It only takes one. And that low murmur starts to become louder and louder and louder before all of a sudden you have an ungrateful people on your hands. They question Moses and the Lord at every single turn. Moses, this might not have been the best idea. I mean, they literally wanted to appoint a leader to take them back into Egypt. Exodus 14, you just, just, just have to look at it. I mean, they, they were a bunch of whiners. They had no food. So what does God do? Give some manna. Ah, man, this manna. How about some meat? Okay, well, there's some quail. I'm really thirsty. How about some water from a rock? Complaint after complaint after complaint. And what did God do? Provided for him. 
He provided for them. He, God protected them. God guided them. And, and they're still not satisfied. They still complain, complain, complain. And then God brought them exactly where he said he promised to bring them. It's called the promised land. And you know the stories. They sent in the spies to check it out, which that wasn't the problem. That's just smart. That's the way God designed this. Go in, strategize, look at it, see what's going on. The problem was when they came back and they said, whoa, there's a lot of giants in the land. Wow, and they start buying into the fact that oh, we, we, can't, we can't overtake them. We, we, we can't take the land. And then they complain, and they complain, and they complain, and God had enough. Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 through 7 through 29. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are what? Grumbling, sound familiar, against me. I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. We still think it's not that big of a deal. This is serious stuff. But it's simple. And don't you find that it's normally the most simple things that become the most difficult things to live out. I mean, the command is to, to quit your complaining. It's a simple command. And yet, it rears its ugly head so often in our lives. But you need to understand this. When you complain, you complain about your life and the direction of it, you are complaining about God. You're not satisfied with Him. You're not satisfied with His direction. You're not satisfied with His provision. But the expectation for you, believer, is for you to be working out your salvation, to be united together, and to do that humbly. But that cannot happen if there is discontent and complaining about the way that God is unfolding His plan in your life. I mean, that's really what the complaint is. God, I don't like how this, this is working out. God, I actually want to keep going on this path. Or God, I'd rather be on that path over there, even though this is clearly the path that you have me on. I mean, do you, do you sound how, do you hear how crazy it sounds? Do you recognize how ungrateful that is and how irreverent that is for the creation to say to the creator, I'm not happy with you, and here are all the reasons why. You don't like it when people talk to you like that. Why would we talk to God like that? Look, Paul knew that this was a problem. And he had known this long before he sent the letter to Philippians. He spoke about it in the Corinthian church as he writes to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 9 through 10. Let us not try the Lord as some of them did, some of them meaning the Israelites, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed. This was a real problem. And of course, we know it's a, it continues to be a problem today. It's always been a part of mankind. It's always been a part of the church. And dissatisfaction, it rears its ugly head in the form of grumbling and disputing and complaining. Complaining about what we have or what we don't have. The way that life continues to unfold. And see, look, this goes so much further than you just complaining about some bridge traffic. Or exit closures. Or the fact that your food was wrong and you had to send it back. It, yes, it, it, it's referring to that, but it's so much deeper. 
It points to a deeper discontent. And it's with the light that God has given you with, has blessed you with, and the path that he has you on. That's what was at the heart of the Israelites and their complaining. It wasn't just about comfort. It wasn't just about hunger and thirst. It, it, it wasn't just fear. It was a complaint about God. God, I don't trust you. God, I don't, I don't have confidence in you. Do you even know what you're doing, where you're leading us? And by the way, this happens in our life as well. God, why aren't you bringing me more opportunities? God, why aren't there better people in my life? God, why am I in the job that I am? God, why, 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 why? It's a lack of trust, a lack of faith in the sovereign plan of God. As if we think we could do a, a better job. And I get it, we probably would never say these things out loud. Maybe we wouldn't even admit that, but that's where the pathway leads. Thomas Boston said this in his commentary on the Shorter Catechism. He says, when you murmur and repine under a cross and afflictive dispensations, this is a presuming to instruct God how to deal with you and to reprove him as if he were in the wrong. Yes, there's a kind of implicit blasphemy in it. As if you had more wisdom and justice to dispose of your lot and to carve out your own portion in this world. Had I been on God's counsel, I would have ordered this matter better. Things would not have been with me as they now are. Oh, presume not to correct the infinite wisdom of God, seeing he has decreed all things most wisely and judiciously. It's a dangerous spot we find ourselves, isn't it? It's something dangerous that we have to guard against, to be vigilant against. It's so easy to fall into the trap of wanting more, wanting something different, or something that you think may be better, which grass is always greener, right? We know that. But here's what you and I don't have, is we don't have the full picture. We don't have the full view. We don't have the sovereign plan of God sitting in front of us. Those are not your decisions to make. Your decision is to follow God and to be faithful in doing so. That's what the call of the Israelites was. And yet, look what they did. And I want, to, I want you to notice something. This is very important. And, and, and I want you to recognize this. That Paul, he, he, he continues to speak to the Corinthians. And there's a reason that he continues to speak about it. And there's a reason that it's recorded in Scripture. Further on in that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. Now, these things, what things? All the things that happened to the Israelites, they happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but as such is common to man. Here's why it was recorded. So we can learn from it. So we can learn from history. We know the saying, right? If you don't learn from history, it's bound to what? Repeat itself. They're an example. They're an example to how easy it is to fall into that trap. And you and I, we think, I would have done it better. I would have acted better. Man, what an ungrateful bunch of complainers. And yet, what I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll find is we probably would have acted the same exact way. Because you see how easy it was to get off track. You see how easy it was to be discontent even after they were rescued from slavery, even after all the miracles that they witnessed.
But guess what? None of that mattered to them. They just saw their own selfish desires and it overtook them even though they could see the presence of God in the cloud and the presence of God in the fire. It didn't matter. They got off track and it was easy. How much more is it easy for us to do today? And so we know we need to quit complaining. But I want you to notice something about the text here. All of what we've just said is just the first verse. <laughs> this is not an empty command. This is not a command without details. Paul is going to add some context to what he gives. And what he's going to give is he's going to give some motivating factors for why we shouldn't be complaining. And by the way, we like that. We need that. And so it's provided for us. As Paul goes into next in verse 15, it, it says, so that. The command to stop complaining and the motivating factors come next. And what we see next are the results of the sanctification that Paul has been talking about or he has talked about in the previous verses. See, these dear believers were to prove who they were and who they were becoming and to do that not just by their actions, but by their attitudes and by their speech. They are daily being sanctified to be more and more like Jesus. And that should be evidence, evident in their lives, evident by them being, as the text says, blameless and innocent. That is not to say perfect. Don't misunderstand that. Because that's not possible. But it means to be free of fault or defect. And innocent carries with it this idea of being unmixed in your mind. Without mixture of guilt. Free of guilt. That word would be used to describe a metal that is pure and an unmixed alloy. Free of imperfections. That is what the Christian is to be. Unmixed with the world. Unmixed with the imperfections of the world. That, that affect the mind. They affect the mind at every turn and cause the mind to be conformed when our minds are to be transformed. And that can only happen to the one that is a child of God. That's what verse 15 states, right? That we are, as believers, we are a child of God. We are children. We are now adopted into the family of God. You can see that in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4. And as a child of God, you are to be holy because he is holy. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.1 that we should be imitators of God. Children of God are not to be complainers. And grumblers. They're in fact supposed to be blameless and innocent. And Paul says next in that verse, beyond reproach. And that is similar to the previous two words. It's, it's, it's meant to be morally without blemish or fault. It was used in reference to a sacrifice being without spot or blemish. Listen to this from the Old Testament, Numbers 6.14. He shall present an offering to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old, without defect for a burnt offering. And one ewe lamb, a year old, without defect for a sin offering. And one ram, without defect for a peace offering. See, it wasn't that the lamb was perfect, but there was no spot. There was no blemish on it. There was nothing that anyone could point to and say, ah, look at this here. Free of fault, free of guilt. That's the purpose for each one of us as believers. And by the way, this has been set from long ago, longer than you can even imagine. Listen to Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he chose us, who's that believers, in him 
before the foundation of the world. Try to wrap your mind around that one. That we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. That's who you and I are to be as believers, as followers of Christ. This is who we are as we, as we stand before God. That's how God looks at us. Listen to Colossians 1.22. Paul says this, Yet he has now reconciled you, who, that's Jesus, reconciled you, believer, in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you, believer, before him, that is God. And how does he present us? As holy, as blameless, and beyond reproach. As a child of God, you are justified. You are now positionally perfect in, in right standing before a holy God. Your sins no longer are held against you. You are blameless. You are beyond reproach. That is the standing of who you are as a believer. And that's not meant just for you as an individual believer. That's also what is meant for the church corporately. Listen to Ephesians 5, 27. And I'll back up to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, the, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she, the church, would be holy and blameless. And by the way, that's all made possible because of the sacrifice of the Lamb. The precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter. That's quite a motivating factor, isn't it? You and I, we've been saved. We've been rescued. We have a new standing before our God. We have nothing to complain about. So that's the motivation. But there's also a purpose. There's also a purpose in the command. We are not to complain because have nothing to complain about as a child of God. And the purpose of that is found in the middle of verse 15. Let's go back to our text. Verse 15, we see that the, the, the uh, motivation, so that you will prove yourselves to be a blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, and here it is, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We understand who we are before God as redeemed people, but we also need to understand our place in the world and we live amongst unredeemed people. We live in a world that's watching. We live in a world that is lost, in a world in which it is crooked and perverse. Crooked is the Greek word skolios. Sounds a lot like scoliosis, right? You know that the spine is not straight as it was intended to be. And I love the fact of this, that Paul knows his history, but he also knows his scripture. He already wrote about the Israelites in 1 Corinthians, and now he draws a direct quote from Moses in Deuteronomy 32.5. They have acted corruptly towards him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. That's just the harmony of scripture. From beginning to end, we see it working together. And by the way, Peter does the exact same thing uh, during his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That's the world that the Philippian believers were living in. A generation that was not on the straight and narrow. A people that followed their own lust, their own pride, down a crooked road, down perverse roads. And that word perverse, it also speaks of a deviation from that which is straight, but even more so. That's the world that you and I live in. We live in a, in a crooked society, don't we? 
where it is clear that the direction of mankind, the direction of our country, has so far deviated from that which God has set forth in his word. And it boggles the mind, doesn't it? You turn on the TV, and up is down, and down is up, and left is right, and I'm not even going to get into all the other stuff. There's a lot of crookedness and perversity going on in our world. Nothing makes sense. And it's because of this. It's because of an insatiable desire to fulfill one's own pleasure and fulfill the lack of satisfaction that exists outside of Christ. See, that's the generation in which we live in, which you and I live in. And you, believer, you're not to look like them. You're not to sound like them. You're not to act like them or respond like them. That's not our call. You are to be different as shining lights. Look at verse 15. He says, In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you, believer, appear as lights in the world. You as a believer, us as a church, we appear as lights in the world, not as complainers in the world, but as lights in the world. And appear means to shine or to be bright. Illumination. It speaks of the stars and the sun and the moon. And those are all things that catch our eye, don't they? They draw our eye. We're normally drawn to them. See, you and I are called to be salt and light in a dark world. That's what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, yes, and glorify the Father who is in heaven. Paul, he repeats the same concept in Ephesians 5, 8. For you, believer, were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Okay, so here's your responsibility. Walk as children of light. That is that we are called to be different, to point to a different way, to point to one that can give life rather than death, one that is full of light rather than darkness, one that leads to fulfillment rather than a constant state of discontent. And I'll tell you this, nothing douses a shining light more than a complaining spirit. That means you're no different than the world around you. And again, that's not what we're called to be. You are called to stand out. You are called to, to stand up. You are actually called to shine like lights. How is that accomplished? And what should we do? Look at verse 16. So appears lights in the world. Verse 16. Holding fast the word of life. Look, here's what I know. Our actions as believers, they matter. They matter. Every single day when you go out in the world, it matters. Your, your attitudes as a believer, it matters. Our words and the way that we say them, they matter. They should all, all of that should shine like lights. They should point to the one who saved us, the one who, who rescued us, and the one who has adopted us into his everlasting family. See, here's what we know, is the world is lost without Jesus. Paul says we are to hold fast the word of life. And here's the literal translation of that, is to hold forth. To hold forth the word of life. That's this. The gospel. The good news. That we're to hold it forth. That, that we're to hold it out. That's what the gospel of Christ should do. We should be presenting the good news. We are to present the God's word in our life as, as, as we go through it. Because this is the life that he offers. The word is life. It's Jesus 
And it's the Lord that people need. The dying world needs this word of life. Listen to John describe it in 1 John. 1 John 1, 1 through 2. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. John, at this point, he's the last apostle alive. And he has literally seen Christ. He has touched him. He has looked at and touched with our hands concerning what? The word of life. And that's Jesus he's talking about. And the life, Jesus' life, was manifested. And we have seen it. We testify it. We proclaim eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John testified and proclaimed the word of life, which is Jesus. And that is what you and I need to do as believers because the world needs it. They need to see it in your life. They need to see him in, in your language. Now you just see Jesus and how you interact with the world that makes you just want to complain and grumble. They need the good news of Jesus. There's no other place to turn to for salvation, for peace, for contentment, than the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would they go anywhere else? We can't go anywhere else. There's nowhere else to go. That's what Peter told Jesus when, when Jesus, uh, all the people were deserting Jesus and Jesus looks at Peter and says, okay, are you, are you leaving too? And in John 6, 68, he's not up on the screen, but he says, he says, where would I go, Jesus? Who would I follow? Because you have the words of eternal life. Yes, you need to cling to him. Yes, we do need to cling to his word. But this holding fast in the original language is one word, and the context does not mean to hold on to. It does not mean to cling to. It means to hold out. That we should be walking through this life holding forth God's word, holding forth the gospel. That should be in front of us as we go. It should be guiding us. We know Psalm 119, right? Your lamp is a light unto my feet, and a lamp unto my path, a lamp on the path and a light unto my feet. We hold it out. Because he's leading us and he's leading other people to him. The world is lost. They don't even know it. And guess what we have? The good news. We have the good news. And instead of holding it out, how many times do you hold it back? Shame on us as believers. It's not what we're going to be doing. We hold forth the word of life, shining like the lights in the dark world that we are. We hold it out for all to see. Don't be ashamed of the good news. Don't be ashamed of who Jesus is. This is your purpose. This is what Paul is trying to get them to see. He's trying to understand, to help them to understand their purpose, to live out their self-sanctification, to put the work in, to put in the effort, to rely on God for the power and the results. See, Paul, he's been beating this like a drum because it's his life's work. Paul is a pastor. You get that, right? He's a pastor. He's a missionary. And look what he leaves him with. Verse 16, look at this. Look, look, look at his pastor's heart. Okay, hold fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul doesn't want to look back on his life after years of service and time and energy and blood and sweat and tears and see that the people that he ministered to, they just didn't get it. That's not what he wanted to see. I'll tell you this. As a pastor, when you see 
People getting it, living out their faith, that brings a joy that I, I can't even explain. When you see, when I see you, look, I don't just look out over here and just see people. I see you. Many of you have sat at your tables. I've went out to lunch with you. I've prayed with you. I've cried with you. I've seen you in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the hospital. I know your struggles. I know your fears. And when I see someone have it all come together because of the Lord, because of what He does, and it comes together and it makes sense, and we walk through life together, I can't even tell you what that does for me. As I was typing this out, I'm like, why am I weeping? It didn't make sense. And of course, my daughter will say, because Dad, you cried everything now, for apparently. And apparently I do. I was weeping. I'm like, Paul, I can get it. I see it. When you see people that actually get it, this is not something selfish from Paul. This is about who he was. He lived his life for God. But on the flip side, when people turn their back on God, I've seen that. I've seen people that just go, mm -mm. or they turn their back on the church, and they just roll out. I can tell you, it's a pain that I cannot explain. It's like a kick in the gut. It's a sorrow. It's a pain that no pastor ever wants to experience, but they know they will. It's inevitable. Paul understood it. He felt it. Paul's saying, look, I want to look back on my life and see that it wasn't a waste. See that there was fruit and not a look at me sort of thing. We've looked at Paul. You know Paul. He's not like that. He lived for the glory of God. And what would bring the most glory to God? You know what? People coming to him. People growing in him. Living out and working out their sanctification day by day. Walking arm in arms towards the goal. And not complaining. Not grumbling and arguing about what God is doing or what he's not doing. Trusting in him. Trusting in the process. Trusting in the path that he has us on. Taking that next right step. That's why Paul lives his life. He lives it. Look at verse 17. He lives it as a drink offering. He recognized his life for what it was. It was a sacrifice. It was a drink offering. In the Old Testament, many times, when a sacrifice was made, there was some wine that they would take and they would pour it out over or around or in front of the offering. And of course, as that liquid hit, it would be vaporized. It would be made steam. And the rising of that steam would, would be symbolic of the offering rising to God. You know what? That's how Paul viewed his life as an offering. His life was to be poured out. And look who it was being poured out on and for. It was for the believers in Philippi. And of course, all those that Paul wrote to and he ministered to. That's how he viewed his life. Let me ask you. How do you view your life? Do you view it as just your own? To follow whatever path that you want to that will bring you the most pleasure. Complaining about it the whole way. Or do you see your life for what it is as an offering? A living sacrifice as Romans 12 talks about. And recognize this about the offering. It's a vapor. It doesn't last long. So too it is about our lives. So it goes quick, doesn't it? This life is a short time. We live as believers in service to the king. It doesn't need to be spent belly aching and complaining. It needs to be serving, serving him, humbly serving him, not grumble service. Humble service. Look at the end of verse 17 and into verse 18. 
says, but even if I am being poured as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, look at this, I rejoice. And I share with you my joy. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul has shared his life with these people and he asked them to do the same thing to him. They're sharing life together. And by the way, that's exactly what you and I want to do here as a body. We want to walk through life together. We as a body, as a family, our desire is to walk that journey together, to share in life, to celebrate the victories of life, and there are many, and to have joy amidst the sorrow that we may feel and, and even shed tears with each other or for each other. And we understand that our lives, like Paul, is just a vapor. It's gone before you know it. Don't spend it complaining. Spend it. Holding the Lord. Lord of life. It's simple. Quit your complaining. When you complain, here's what it is. You fit right in with the world from which you're supposed to stand out. Hold forth the gospel and hold back your complaining tongue. Share the word, share your joy, not your complaints. It's simple. Well, man, is it difficult to put into practice. I'll pray for you. Will you pray for me too? We all need it. Let's pray. Father, what a command. A simple one. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what you're saying to us. It's such a difficult one to put into practice. Lord, yeah, we can complain about minor things, and we shouldn't do that either. Lord, this goes so far beyond these minor things to our life, our life with you. Are we content in you? Where do we find our contentment? Lord, I pray for that contentment in each one of our lives. As I was talking with a dear friend this morning, we, we have nothing to complain about. We really don't. You are a good God. You have rescued us from slavery. Forgive us. Forgive us when we do complain. Or challenge us like you've done today. Remind us that that's not where our life is to be. Our life is to be like a light. Holding forth your word. Holding forth the good news. That's the only way. It's the only way to salvation. Is through you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we can take that good news with us everywhere. That people will see a difference in us. That we will be light in that dark place. And the only way we can do that is through your strength. And so I pray selfishly for myself, fathers. I know I can complain. I can be discontent in what you've given. And what you've provided. I freely admit that. Lord, I pray for strength. I pray for strength for each one in here as we walk out these doors. And I guarantee you before we even hit Route 50, we're probably going to be complaining about something. Lord, give us strength to recognize you've blessed us beyond measure. We love you and we praise you. We want to live our life for you to show the world that there is true contentment. It's not found in us. It's not found in anything that we see. It's found in you and your sacrifice. Thank you. Thank you. Empower us as we go. We ask it all in your name. Amen. Let's stand and continue praying for you.